Our Heavenly Father, as we come to your word, we pray now, please help us to listen, help us to understand, and help us to put into practice. O oh Lord, open my lips that my mouth may declare your praise. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In his critically acclaimed book titled 1984, George Orwell introduces us to the concept of Big Brother. Now, in his future society, Big Brother is the alleged founder of the government of the South, a government which is known for its mass surveillance of its people. Now, it's alleged because Big Brother doesn't actually exist. He's a caricature. He's, a, he's an idea, a bit like Uncle Sam in modern-day America. And uh, in his book, on every street corner and everywhere you went, there was a device called a telescreen. And this telescreen would record what you were doing. And it wasn't subtle in doing so, because on every one of these devices was the slogan, Big Brother is watching you. So when we fast forward to today in a modern age, we find that technology is actually making this idea of mass surveillance and uh, of, of people from governments very possible. We know from the Chinese government in particular that they're using facial recognition technology to track their citizens. In fact, they use it to the point where they can determine your ethnic background and therefore, if they desire, to make you subject to persecution. The Australian government is wary of China's motives, which is why their technology for 5G is banned in this country, for fear that China is actually not spying just on their own citizens, but also potentially on us. Not that our own government has their hands clean. It wasn't that long ago when they wanted to pass a law to record and save the metadata attached to your phone calls and text messages. Now, metadata is a great concept. It's a very PC-friendly name of saying information which identifies who you are. And so they've been accused of being big brother, of taking our invasion of privacy too far. But it's not just governments that can do this. If uh, you use any social media, particularly for Facebook and Twitter and Instagram, they are known for tracking your movements across the web. Now, that's particularly insidious because these companies only exist to make money. And when you consider what they do, they don't manufacture anything and they don't retail anything, which means the commodity they deal with is you and your attention. And they will ramp up their algorithms to make sure that they make the most money regardless of what that may mean for the individual, for the most vulnerable of their users in what they suggest for them to see and the influence they have over them. Now, if you're not concerned about this kind of invasion of privacy, then you probably come from the, the line of thought which says, well, if you've got nothing to hide, then it's okay. And if that's your attitude this morning, then you're in for a bit of a shock as we read from David. So turn with me in Psalm 139, and we'll start with verse 1 of 139, where David drops this bombshell. O oh Lord, you have searched me 
and you know me. Have you noticed the tense in this particular verse? You have searched me. It's past tense. It's not something that's going to happen. It's happened already. And this isn't a company or an entity or a government that is searching you. It's God. And the result of this is he knows you. Okay, so exactly how is it that God knows us? Well, let's read on. The first part of verse 2 says this. You know when I sit and when I rise. And the first part of verse 3. You discern my going out and my lying down. So whether you're sitting or standing, whether you're lying down or you're going out, be it walking, running, jogging, whatever, God knows exactly what you are physically doing. But he knows more than that. The second part of verse 2 says, you perceive my thoughts from afar. Well, how does he perceive them? Is it just an idea of what you might be thinking? Well, in verse 4 we read, before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely, O Lord. Let's consider that for a moment. The passage of time between when you think something and when you say it is minuscule. You tend to talk as you think. But before you can get it out, God knows what it is that you're thinking. And so God knows everything you do and everything you think. Now, are you a little concerned by this? Because from here, it gets worse. If you read from verse 7, David says this, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. So it doesn't matter your elevation. It doesn't matter your depth. Wherever you happen to be between the heavens and to the earth, God's there with you. And David continues, the, we read in verse 9, If I rise on the wings of the dawn, well, the sun rises in the east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, now, David's in Israel which means the sea here is the Mediterranean, which is to the west. So it doesn't matter which direction of the compass you might be at, nor does it matter what elevation you've got, God is right there, more so than the telescreens in Big Brother in George Orwell's novel. But it's worse still. If you read from verse 11, if I say... Surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me. Even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. So no matter where we are, even if we try to conceal what we're doing, that, that attempt to concealment is futile. God sees through it all, even when men can't. So I ask you again this morning, are you concerned yet? Because it gets worse still. Read with me from verse 13, where David says this, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. 
So it is God who has made you and it is God who has determined the times and the places in which you should live. Why are you here this morning? Well, you might say I caught the bus or I came here by car, but why are you actually here in this time and place? Because God made you for this time and this place. But it's more than that. If we drop down to verse 16 in the second part there, we read this. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. So yes, it is God who made us and determined the times and places in which we live, but he has also determined the time and the place in which we will die. He has complete control over our lives. And so I ask you yet again, are you concerned yet? Because it gets worse still. Read with me from verse 19, where David says this. If only you would slay the wicked, O God. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men. Now, if you're anything like me when you read this, you take the if and go, oh, this is a conditional, right? This is something that God may or may not do. If only you would slay the wicked. But if you look at this same verse from the King James Version, then all ambiguity is gone. The King James Version says this, Surely thou wilt slay the wicked, O God. Surely God will bring about justice for the wicked. And so how do we interpret this from the NIV? Well, David's asking more immediacy, not whether God will do it or not. So perhaps what's missing here is one word. If only you would slay the wicked now, O God. He's calling for immediate justice to the wicked, to those who are bloodthirsty men. So who do you think of when you think of the wicked? What comes to mind when you think of bloodthirsty men? Is it Adolf Hitler that comes to mind? Joseph Stalin? Perhaps Pol Pot? There's plenty of world leaders to choose from, unfortunately. But maybe not leaders, maybe more individuals. Maybe you think of Jack the Ripper or Al Capone or Charles Manson even. Well, David defines for us what the wicked are like. <clears throat> Excuse me, if you turn to verse 20, this is what David says about the wicked, about these bloodthirsty men. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. That is, they show no honour, they show no respect or reverence for God. If they speak of God at all, they speak of him evilly. And they take the Lord's name in vain. Now, does that sound familiar? Does that ring any bells for you? It should, because David has outlined two of the first three commandments here. Let me, let me read them to you. From, I'm reading from Exodus 20 and verse 2, where God says this, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. That's the first command. 
And in verse 7, the third command, you shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God. For the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. Now, this presents a problem. It's a problem for me because I know just these two commands. I have not kept them perfectly. And if this is what defines the wicked, then I am counted amongst the wicked. And if you're honest with yourself, then you would realise that you too have not kept these laws perfectly, which means justice is coming for you, just as it's coming for me. Now you might say to yourself, well, hang on a minute there, you're laying it on a bit thick, uh, I'm not really wicked, I don't go around openly doing these things, I'm not the worst there is in society. And granted, I'll, I'll give you that, that's not a problem. But you, you know that justice doesn't work that way, right? There has never once been a murder trial where the judge has stood up before the courts and gone, we're here because the defendant has murdered someone, but it's just the first time they've done it. Every other time they've lived a, a really perfect life. They've been a model citizen. Therefore, we're just going to mistrial this and let it go. That's not how justice works, right? He's, the defendant's not brought before the trial or before the courts based on his keeping of the law. That's expected of all of us. That's the standard. He's brought before the courts because of his one trespass. And justice is delivered because of that trespass. And see, David is also aware of this. David is not thinking that he is something special. Now, we read this this morning as our first psalm. And if you want to just stick your finger in where we are now and turn to Psalm 14, which is on page 538, and we'll read again what David says about who is accounted amongst the wicked. Psalm 14, that's page 538. We read from verse 1 where David says, The fool says in his heart there is no God. They are corrupt. Their deeds are vile. There is no one who does good. The Lord looks down from heaven on the sons of men to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. All have turned aside. They have together become corrupt. There is no one who does good, not even one. Now this not even one means David. This not even one means me. And this not even one means you. So I ask you for the last time this morning... Before we move on, are you concerned yet? You shouldn't be concerned. You should be afraid. Do you not see the God who searches you and knows you is the God who knows everything? You cannot hide. The God who calls you to account before his throne of justice, is the God who is everywhere. You cannot run. 
And the God who carries out that sentence against you is the God who is all-powerful. You cannot resist. Friends, we should be afraid. We should be deathly afraid. The writer of the Hebrews in chapter 10, in the context of an expectation of judgment and raging fire that will consume the enemies of God, says this in verse 31. It is a dreadful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. You ought to be afraid. But fear is not David's response. If you turn with me to verse 23 of Psalm 139, if you flip back to that psalm, we read this. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See, David doesn't recoil in fear under the gaze of the Almighty. Instead, he opens himself up to inspection and invites God to search him. Well, how? How can he do this, knowing what is to come even for him? Well, it's because David knows not only the attributes of God, his knowledge, his presence, his power, but he knows the character of God. And so for us, we too are going to look at the character of God by revisiting these three attributes in this psalm. Turn back with me, if you will, to verse 3, where we read this. You discern my going out and my lying down. You are familiar with all my ways. Now, I stand before you this morning in the privileged position of having been married to my beautiful wife for longer than I haven't. And as a result, I know her character. I know she is patient and kind and gentle. She's been married to me for over two decades, so she's long-suffering. And I know she works very hard, and yet when she comes home from work every day, she prepares the evening meal. She does so because she loves her children and she loves me. I also know her tastes, though I don't understand it. She enjoys the music of Bob Dylan. She likes her coffee from the plunger, black and gritty. She's a sucker for romance novels and chick flicks. And when it comes to presents, flowers, makeup or jewellery, uh, that won't do. But chocolate, uh, chocolate's always welcome. I also know her quirks. I know her strange logic on how to divide the knives from the forks, from the spoons in the cutlery drawer. I know that she's always telling us to turn lights off in rooms where we're not present. But she'll keep the radio on in the kitchen and no one's listening. And so I am familiar with all her ways. And in the same way, God is familiar with all our ways. See, that's born out of a relationship, one that naturally tends to lead to a desire to want to protect. 
And we see that in verse 5, where David says, You hem me in behind and before. You have laid your hand upon me. Now David, in some other psalms, often talked about being safe under the shadow of God's wings. And for me, that is the image which immediately comes through here. One of a hen who gathers her chicks under her wings in order to keep them safe. And this is how God deals with us. So it's true, as we've already seen, that God knows everything. But it's less of a matter of cold, hard fact. And it's more a matter of love. And so then when talking about God's presence... David says this about God's character. If we look at verse 9 and read from there, if I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, what? Even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. Now, if God was just a God who was recording everything you did and it was everywhere, then he'd be probably more like a private detective who's at a distance and is using his zoom lenses to recall what he wants. But that's not what's happening here. His hand will guide you, his right hand will hold you fast. God is within touching distance. He can't extend his hand beyond this. So God is close to each one of us when he's everywhere, not just at a distance. But God is more than just close. If you turn to verse 18 and the last part of that particular verse, we read this amazing statement from David. When I awake, I am still with you. Now, let me see if I can work this out. David, when I'm awake, which means he must have been asleep. Now, if he's asleep, then he's not doing much. He's not interactive. He's not responsive in any way. And yet he says, when I awake, I am still with you. What could he have done to stay with God? Well, nothing. The point there is, at the very moment that he opened his eyes, God was there because God never left. He's always been there when he sleeps and when he rises So it's true to say that God is everywhere, but it's more fitting to say that he is always there. And then when talking about God's power, David says this in verse 13. For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. Now, I'm not sure about the rest of you, but I have a mother who knits. I've seen her knit, and often when she starts, you'll go, what are you making? Because you can't tell what's happening. It could be a a cardigan, it could be a soft toy, who knows? It could be anything. But the interesting thing is that she has a pattern in mind before she starts. She doesn't just randomly do some knitting and go, oh, looks like I'm going to make one of these things. She knows beforehand. And every stitch and every cast, every pearl and every loop, it's important If you get it wrong, then the pattern's not right. And even if you're just loose with your tension in between your stitches, the final result loses its integrity. 
So in the same way here, God is intimately involved in making us. He had a plan and design to work to. We, we know this. We have two arms, two legs, one head, one heart. Uh, similar blueprint. But he didn't just make us as a stamp and move on. He made each one of us unique. And now we know this and we take it for granted. When you pick up your phone and you want to unlock your phone, you put your finger in the right spot on your phone and it goes, yep, I'm open. Why? Well, because you're the only person who has your fingerprint. And so it knows it's you. And now if for some reason that doesn't work, and you go, yeah, oh, okay, fine. You point the phone at your face and it looks at your face and goes, yeah, I'll unlock because I know it's you. Well, how? Because your face is unique. God has made your face yours. No one else has it. But it's not enough to say here that God creates us physically unique because that's not what David's saying. In verse 13, he says, For you created my inmost being. Now, in the same way, God has made your particular way of thinking and reasoning, your likes and your dislikes, your creativity, your imagination, your sense of humour, all these things which make you, you, God put them together in a particular pattern, in a particular way that is unique to you and nobody else. So it's no surprise then that in light of this, David bursts into praise in verse 14. I praise you for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. And so, you see, it's true that God is all-powerful, but that power is not expressed as some blunt, uncaring, unfeeling, irresistible force, like a tsunami would be if it crashes into a coastline and wipes out everything before it. Rather, he expresses himself in creativity, in intimacy, and in attention to detail. So what then does it mean for us in terms of God's justice? Well, David, knowing the character of God, that his knowledge, his presence and his power display themselves in intimacy, in love and in relationship, David turns to God to save him. Now, he looked forward to a salvation that was coming even as we are in a privileged position this morning of being able to look back and see Jesus. Now, you might say, but that's not here in the verses. Where are you getting this from? It's true it's not in these verses, but if we turn to Acts chapter 2, Peter explains that for us. If you keep a thumb now in Psalm 139, I'd ask you to turn to Acts 2 that was read by Leslie earlier. It's on page 1078 in your church Bibles. And we'll read from verse 25. Verse 25, where Peter has this to say. David said about him, I saw the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad and my tongue rejoices. My body also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon me to the grave, nor will you let your Holy One 
see decay. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will fill me with joy in your presence. So in God's presence, David is filled with joy, not fear. His heart is glad. He is not shaken. Why? Because the Holy One was not abandoned to the grave. Now, the term Holy One here is important. Holy, by definition, means without sin. So his hope is in the one who was without sin and who was not abandoned to the grave. See, Peter picks this up and explains it in the following verses. Verse 29, he says, Brothers, I can tell you confidently that the patriarch David died and was buried, and his tomb is here to this day. But he was a prophet and knew that God had promised him on oath that he would place one of his descendants on his throne. Seeing what was ahead, he spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to the grave, nor did his body see decay. His hope is in the resurrection of the Christ, because in being resurrection, it proves that he was without sin. Otherwise, like the rest of us and like the wicked, he would be slain and that would be the end of it. But he did not stay in the grave. And the fact that he rose again means that we know that he is able to pay completely for our sin, for our transgressions against God's law. And so who is this Holy One? Who is this Christ that David didn't know by name but was looking forward to? Well, Peter tells us in the following verses. Verse 32. God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all witnesses of the fact. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out what you now see and hear. For David did not ascend to heaven, and yet he said, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. So David's hope is in God's salvation. God's salvation is revealed to us in Jesus. And David knew that the resurrection was where his hope lied. Because he rose from the dead, he can have his sins forgiven. But then... How do we receive this salvation from God? Again, Peter explains for us better than I could. In verse 37, when the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So my question for you this morning, have you received this salvation? Have you come in repentance and faith in Jesus and received pardon from your sins, a way out underneath the justice that is coming, the sentence which is yours? Has it been paid for in Christ? 
If not, then my advice to you is simply this. Flee to Christ. Flee to him. Don't wait. You know, realise that justice is coming. Do you not know that today could be the last day ordained for you? Don't wait. Don't think of your own goodness. It's not going to work. Justice is coming for your trespasses. Repent. Repent this morning and trust in Christ Jesus and receive salvation from God and the forgiveness of sins. And for those of you who have, then my message for you this morning is the same. Flee to Christ. Flee to him. Don't look to your own good works. Don't wait to come to him. See, Christ died once for all time. But repentance is an ongoing thing. It's not something you do once and go, well, I'm done. I've repented, Lord. I'm not going to do things again. But you know, even if I do, you've, you've paid for them, so it's all good. No, we need to take the same attitude that David took. So if you turn back with me to Psalm 139, and we're going to look at David's attitude in the light of God's salvation. We're going to read from verse 21, where David has these very harsh words to say. Do I not hate those who hate you, O Lord, and abhor those who rise up against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. See, David's attitude towards those who openly hate God is to despise them along with their practices. David wants nothing to do with them. Away from me, you bloodthirsty men, he says in an earlier verse. He doesn't want to do these things any longer. In fact, he hates these things. And this is the beginning of repentance where you hate the things you've done in the past and you no longer want to do them. But it's only the beginning. Simply stopping doing those things isn't repentance. It's just the start. What you need to do is start doing what God would have you do. And this is what we get from David in verse 23. Let's read the final verses. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. Have you ever done a written test and then the teachers marked your test and not told you what your score was? Did you ever have a blood test and go to the doctor and say, yeah, I've got your results, but they're for me to know and for you to find out? Have you ever been through a testing period and then not known what the outcome of that was? See, when David says, test me and know my anxious thoughts, when he says, see if there's any offensive way in me, he's not being proud and going, hey, you can test me, I'm good. No, he's asking God to show him where he needs to be better, what he is doing wrong that he is not aware of, because he wants to do what God would have him do. He wants to live in a way that gives him glory and gives him praise because he knows the character of God and he knows the salvation that comes from God. And so he continues to repent. And so for us, 
we should do the same. You see, this repentance comes with a promise that we will be led in the way everlasting. God doesn't leave us on our own. We heard from Paul, if you come to him in repentance and in faith, you receive the Holy Spirit. And by receiving the Holy Spirit, you are able to overcome the sin which is otherwise in your life and live in a way that brings glory to God. So this is how we ought to live. So then, to finish off, I finish on the same message. Flee to Christ. Friends, if you've found yourself in a sin, if that sin happens to be on a Monday morning, don't wait till Sunday to come to God. Flee to him, always. Come to him in repentance and in faith. If you haven't done so before, do so now. Don't put it off or wait. Always come to him, for he forgives our sins if we believe in him. Let's just bow our heads in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we praise you and we glorify you for you are the God whose power and whose presence and whose knowledge is shown to us through love, through relationship, through intimacy. And though, Lord, we stand before you guilty, knowing we have trespassed against your law and we deserve your wrath, yet you provided salvation for us through Jesus Christ. We thank you, Heavenly Father, that you did not spare him, but made him take the punishment we deserve. And we know that he can, for he was not abandoned to the grave, but he rose from the dead on the third day. And we praise him who is now exalted at your right hand. And we come with joy. We come with, with worship. We come not shaken before your presence. And we come in certain hope because of what Christ has done for us. Thank you, Heavenly Father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.